Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. I bought the book Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde several months ago in preparation for this episode. And every time I passed it on my bookshelf, those two words would just drop into my consciousness and stay there for a while. Sister Outsider. They're two words that are so laden with meaning and emotion and yet they're complete opposites. A sister is one of the most intimate relationships a person can have. It's your very own family, a person who shares your DNA and shares your home. An outsider, a stranger, an intruder, a visitor, someone who is not brought into the family. And I thought about those two words, and I thought about the great human family, which really is how I was taught to see the world, to see all people as siblings. And I thought of what Audre Lorde was trying to tell me with that two-word title. And what I've really taken in, even before I started reading the book, was this sense that some of my sisters feel like outsiders in our own family. And so even before I started the book, I was deeply moved just by the title. I'm really excited to discuss this book. And I'm really, really excited to discuss this book with my friend, Suzette Duncan. Welcome, Suzette. Thank you so much for being here today. It's so good to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation, too. Well, and that's a good bridge, actually, because the the last step before we get into the book is just to get to know Audre Lorde better. So mm-hmm. if you could just tell us um, who she was and tell us her story a bit. Sure. So um, she was born Audre Lorde. Uh, New York City in February 18th, 1934. Her dad was for, from Barbados and her mom was from Grenada. So additionally, Audra was nearsighted to the point of being legally blind. And in her book, Sister Outsider, she talks about her early memories of being shamed for her dark skin and for being visually impaired or disabled. And so she had a deep sense that there was something wrong with her. Uh, she talks about, though, learning how to read and talk at the same time and write at the age of four. Um, and if asked if she was feeling, Audra would reply by reciting a poem. She said that she even thought in poetry. I would have liked to have met her as a mm-hmm. kid, I think. Yeah. Around the age of 12, she began writing her own poetry and connecting with others at her school who were considered outcasts, as she felt she was. It sounds like she was kind of like a ringleader of the outcast Mm. in a way. And a note on the spelling of her name. I didn't know this actually um, until this podcast, but when Audra was a kid, she decided that she was more interested in the artistic symmetry of the E endings in the two side-by-side names, Audra Lord, than in the spelling And then in spelling her name the way her parents had intended. So she dropped the Y at the end of Audrey. Okay. And so now I keep calling her Audrey Lord, but it's Audra. Right. Is that how she? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's how I learned it. And I never learned. I always thought that was her given name too. Okay. Well, then I will change it for the rest of the episode and say Audrey, (laughs) because I was saying Audrey, because I thought she just changed the spelling, but didn't change the pronunciation. And I don't know that I've heard it like very clearly pronounced to know the difference. So I will make the mental update that it's Audra. Okay. All right. 
So she attended Hunter College High School. If anyone from New York is listening to this, you know Hunter College High School. Um, it's a, a secondary school for intellectually gifted students. Um, I definitely wanted to go there when I was a kid in New York and graduated. She graduated in 1951. Um, and while she attended Hunter, actually, she got her her first poem published in Seventeen magazine. Um after her school's literary journal rejected it for being inappropriate. Um, yeah, that's that's a flex, I think. Uh, she also, <laughs> yeah. Total flex. She, right? Yeah. She also participated in poetry workshops sponsored by the um, Harlem Writers Guild, uh, but noted that she, was, she always felt like somewhat of an outcast from the Guild because she was both crazy and queer, but they thought I would grow out of it. In 1954, she spent a year at the National University of Mexico, and when she came back to New York, she attended Hunter College and graduated in the class of 1959. She then went on to Columbia University and earned a master's degree in library science in 1961, and she was a public librarian in nearby Mount Vernon, New York. Reading this also, I have to say, like, I know all these places, right? Mm. <laughs> so I'm like, it's like hitting me in a very, in a different way, I guess. So cute. Um, uh, in 1962, Lord married attorney Edwin Rollins, who was white and gay, and she and Rollins had two children, but they divorced in 1970. She became the head librarian of the town school in New York City, where she remained until 1968. In 1968, she became the writer of residence at a college in Mississippi called Tougaloo. She led workshops with uh, young Black undergraduate students who were eager to talk about the civil rights issues of the time. Um, and because of her interactions with her students, she affirmed her desire to not only live out her life as queer, crazy and queer, but also to devote attention to uh, the formal aspects of her craft as a poet. Uh, so her poems, Cables, Cables to Rage, came out after her time and experiences at Tougaloo. She also founded a press called Kitchen Table, Women of Color Press, and that published the anthology, This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. You covered this in your podcast a little while ago. So she published many, many works of poetry and prose, uh, becoming more and more well-known in her lifetime. And her she's probably most famous for her essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. The essay is contained in the anthology of essays and speeches that we're going to discuss today, Sister Outsider, which was published in 1984. She was known uh, to describe herself as Black, lesbian, feminist, poet, and mother. So while she was in Mississippi at Tougaloo, she met her partner, Francis Clayton, a white lesbian professor of of psychology uh, who was her romantic partner until 1989 uh, but their relationship continued for the remainder of, of Audra's life um, from 1981 until her death she was the New York State Poet Laureate Audra Lord died of breast cancer at the age of 58 on November 17, 1992 in St. Croix where she had been living with Black feminist activist Gloria I. Joseph. In an African naming ceremony before her death, she took the name Gamba Adisa, which means warrior, she who makes her, her meaning known. What an incredible human being. 
Well, let's get into Sister Outsider. One thing I didn't know when I when I kind of picked up the book is it like you just mentioned, it's an anthology, actually. So it's like a lot of different essays. And so that makes it in some ways kind of like easy to read. You can just kind of pick it up and, and take these bite size themes. Right. You know what I mean? And so why, as usual, we'll just take turns sharing some of the parts that struck us, stood out to us the most. So Suzette, do you want to start and just tell us some parts that you found the most striking? Sure. We could start with this quote from chapter 22. So when I read it, it resonated very deeply with me. So growing up, metabolizing hatred like daily bread because I am black, because I am woman because I am not black enough, because I am not some particular fantasy of woman, because I am. <sighs> yeah, that, um, she talks about, like, not being sure why <laughs> you're in this position of being despised, right? Mm, that, that really breaks my heart. <laughs> <clears throat> It reminds me there if I can read this one quote by Audrey or Audre Lord, she says, quote, black women are expected to use our anger only in the service of other people's salvation or learning. But that time is over. My anger has meant pain to me, but it has also meant survival. And before I give it up, I'm going to be sure that there is something at least as powerful to replace it on the road to clarity. End quote. So did you did that resonate for you, Suzette, that part of the book? It definitely did. So actually, you know, the next quote, I think, is very connected to this first one about metabolizing anger or hatred as daily bread. And the next quote is actually, I think it's at the end of this the chapter that that comes from, but um the one that it resonated with me was I was not meant to be alone and without you who understand. And, um, you know, that first quote kind of definitely made me think about the ways in which um, we, as black people kind of eat up hatred uh, constantly, but then also the fact that like the people that we, uh, and this quote kind of, uh, reasserts that the people that we are looking to for refuge, right, other Black people, also don't necessarily offer that. Mm. I definitely experienced the policing of other Black folk on my, the way I chose to express myself, mm. or dress, right, wear my hair. Um, and what I most wanted, right, was for them to be with me. Mm. But I got rejection, uh, I got being alone. So this this is kind of leading into one of the the next quotes that I wanted to share, actually, about what, what you're saying about, like, sharing those differences honestly and talking about, like, here's mm. what my life actually looks like. I was thinking about that phrase that you shared at the beginning where she says, I was not meant to be alone and without you who understands. And... Mm. She develops that point in this quote as well. She says, quote, difference must not merely be tolerated, but seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark like a dialectic. Only then does the necessity for interdependency become unthreatening. End quote. Mm. 
And I just love that encouragement of like being who we are, honestly, and not hiding ourselves. And I, I, if I can really quick, I'll just throw in one more quote that she says. She says, quote, as women, we have been taught either to ignore our differences or to view them as causes for separation and suspicion rather than as forces for change. Without community, there is no liberation. Only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between an individual and her oppression. But community Mm. must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretense that these differences do not exist. This actually makes me think about, because she says something about, if you don't express your differences, right, they can be used against you. They can be weaponized against you. And um, I don't remember exactly how she puts it, but like, so, and she kind of says, but if I express it, then it becomes like a tool for me, Mm. right? It doesn't become a a thing that is used against me because it has a tool for me and my liberation. And I really think that that's an important thing for people to, to see or to consider because like, yeah. Right now, and like, if we look at like our kind of like, if if I can say cancel culture, although I, I have doubts about that, but like the ways in which, I mean, my wife is experiencing this at work right now, like the, the, the things that you can express is narrowing in the mm. public space right now, let's mm-hmm. say that. And it doesn't help us, right? It harms us mm. because it keeps pushing people out of our circle of allies or friends right Mm -hmm. or people that we can relate to or see ourselves in it creates more enemies out of other people than friends and i mean it's so dangerous Mm. whereas like if we were simply able to celebrate what makes us different right and to say wow you see this thing differently than i do i wonder what i can learn right from the way that you see the world like it's immediately expansive and So it's interesting to me that like kind of um, a lot of discourse around race and culture is about erasing difference. Right. Mm. And it doesn't. And and that is what is kind of like alternately making it harder for us to like embrace everyone. Yeah. So, yeah. What a great point. So, yeah, I think this actually connects to the next quote that I thought that I picked out, which is, we are not responsible for our own oppression, but we are responsible for our own liberation. And like I said, it's like, um, it totally connects to her idea that if you use what's inside of you, right, to um, to free yourself, basically, that it can't be used as a cudgel against you uh, by people who don't agree with you. One thing that I was struck by in that quote where you said, we are not responsible for our own oppression, but we are responsible for our own liberation. And that that's obviously something that she's directing t- to a Black audience, right? I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit. We talked about white guilt a minute ago, but I, I just have to say as a person who it, I'm white and descended from Europeans, and I do have this guilt, the, kind of this collective guilt, mm. and... I thought she was, this was a a quote that she specifically addressed, white guilt. She says, quote, this is her talking, quote, my anger is a response to racist attitudes and to the actions and presumptions that arise out of these attitudes. 
if your dealings with other women reflect those attitudes, then my anger and your attendant fears are spotlights that can be used for growth in the same way I have used learning to express anger for my growth, but for corrective surgery, not guilt. Guilt and defensiveness are bricks in a wall against which we all flounder. They serve none of our futures. Mm. End quote. And I thought that was so powerful to me because you were just describing how your students kind of got stuck in guilt and you were like, okay, here's how to be an anti-racist. And it's been really a neat, even though the year has been so horrible, I think that one really neat thing that's come from it is a lot of my white friends have been reading and me too. I mean, just educating ourselves and reading books that we might not have read otherwise about how to be better and how to not just get stuck in guilt and then do nothing, which as she says, serves none of our futures. So I wanted to read a couple of passages from this next part, if that's okay, Suzette, and then just ask you what you thought or if this resonates with you at all. There's absolutely. I just felt like I, again, I was approaching this, like, how can I be better being a white woman and being a straight woman. And so I want to read a couple of these things where she talks about white women and she, she talks about, well, I'll just read in her words, quote, the woman's studies program of a Southern university invites a black woman to read following a week long forum on black and white women. What has this week given to you? I ask the most vocal white woman says, I think I've gotten a lot. I feel black women really understand me a lot better now. They have a better idea of where I'm coming from, end quote. I'm just going to read these and let them stand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Another one that she's, and, and of course, she's a scholar, right? She's, she's visiting universities. She's doing lectures. She's doing speeches. And so she's having like all of these interactions in the early 80s with kind of like consciousness raising and they're talking about race and gender more. So she's just sharing some of these experiences. Here's another one. Quote, White women are beginning to examine their relationships to black women, yet often I hear them wanting only to deal with little colored children across the roads of childhood, the beloved nursemaid, the occasional second grade classmate, those tender memories of what was once mysterious and intriguing or neutral. You avoid the childhood assumptions formed by the raucous laughter at Rastus and Alfalfa, which I'm assuming I think was probably a racist depiction in a tv show like in the media i think it was little rascals alfalfa was in little rascals Ah, got it okay well that was before our time but i can kind of get the gist yeah Um, (laughs) but just the racist things that people just laughed at in the in the media right Mm -hmm. and then she resumes by saying the acute message of your mommy's handkerchief spread upon the park bench because i had just been sitting there Mm. end quote oh just like guts me but these are things she talks about right she talks about remembering one of her very earliest memories is being on the subway Mm. and a white woman not wanting to touch her and her thinking like what's wrong with me why doesn't she want to touch me and then it just dawns on her yeah and then okay one more she says that's the daily bread right yes yeah yes um i'll share one more and then um okay see what you think about this quote I wheel my two-year-old daughter in a shopping cart through the supermarket in Eastchester, and a little white girl riding past in her mother's cart calls out excitedly, Oh, look, Mommy, a baby maid. And your mother shushes you, but she does not correct you. 
And so 15 years later at a conference on racism, you can still find that story humorous. But I hear your laughter is full of terror and dis-ease, end quote. Mm. So that section to me, I just like let it sink in. It is really, it's so hard to like realize like what, what, people go through daily like you said that daily bread that my black friends my whole life have been eating and I didn't even know but what did you think of this this section Suzette what were your thoughts yeah reading that or I listened to it but listening to that section I remember just being like ugh every like (laughs) I think that was the sound I made every at the Mm -hmm. end of every story and um I mean you know it's like um Something that struck me listening to this book was just how much things had been have remained similar to what she's talking about. Well, there's even okay. One last thing is I remember in that section, too, there's a woman who they had done a conference on racism and this woman was like saying, well, no women of color showed up to our conference on racism. So I guess we won't do one again. And Audre Lorde's like exactly what you said, I guess, is just, but whose problem is racism? Like, it's not the women of color's problem or burden or even ability to change the system. Like, it's the white women. So the conferences on racism, well, white men and women, right? Like, that's the the burden of changing that needs to be with white people, not with people of color. Yes, yes. There's that path. Yes. It's so, it's like remarkable to me. Like the discourse, like squarely puts it in the hands of people who have no power to make a difference. Mm. It's it's remarkable, yeah. literally. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, tell me some more sections that stood out to you, Suzette. Okay, so actually, I think this section lets us talk a lot about a lot of things, and it's a quote. She says, "The white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am." The black mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. Mm. And like this actually takes me in a lot of directions. One of them is how like this or, or split, I guess, between rationality and feeling, I guess, that's like so prominent Mm-hmm. In the way that we conceptualize ourselves as human beings. And um, this comes to mind for me because, like, I feel like so much of what Audre Lorde does is, like, challenge us to integrate those things together mm-hmm. in her work. Like, Zami, to me, is a great example of that, actually. Because it's poetry, it's history, it's biography, it's fiction, it's everything. And it allows it like it's a book that allows you to to understand something in a way that you've never understood it before, I think. Mm. And it's because it doesn't um, respect the boundaries between the rational and the and the like uh, sublime, let's say. Right. Or the like artistic and the like intellectual. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, like even in her work. What she's saying is like, we are we are not being served by thinking of these things as being so distant from each other. Like we need them to interact. That that's uh, some of the things this makes me think about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that section is, I think, so important too, Suzette. And I think one of her, one of Lord's most famous quotes that she's known for is that quote where she says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I just want to read this quote where that comes from. She says, quote, those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular and sometimes reviled, and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structure in order to define and seek a world in which we can all flourish. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Mm. End quote. I mean, that's just so rich, right? That whole paragraph. But Yeah. That last sentence is so important, right? Mm-hmm. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Mm-hmm. So we need a broader vision. Like there's going to be a bigger house and you will still have a place in it, right? Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. So there are two other quotes that I found in the, in the book that I want to talk about. And um, the first one is uh, this. I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood, that the speaking profits me beyond any other effect. I am standing here as a Black lesbian poet, and the meaning of all that weighs down, weighs upon the fact that I am still alive and might not have been. And I, like, uh, I think this, you know, this is kind of like uh, going back to uh, some of the things that she's, speaking about earlier right kind of like not having your um your your yourself used against you right mm-hmm. um because you've spoken it i think one of the next parts that you were going to share Suzette, kind of ties into the same kind of the same theme of of keeping you know thoughts and feelings and and true identity to yourself because sometimes it can just be so hard or almost impossible to communicate yeah yeah this quote i think really it just like paints the picture so 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 well um and this was early on in the book uh she wrote frequently when speaking to men and white women i am reminded how difficult and time consuming it is to have to reinvent the pencil every time you want to send a message. Mm. It just like, it's so illustrates, right? Like imagine chopping down the tree, right? <laughs> like whittling the wood, <laughs> like that, like so much effort just to be able to communicate something. And sometimes the commu- the thing you need to communicate is like very straightforward. Mm. And I think that, You know, so it's like that quote just like really like it just kind of blew my mind when I read it. Mm 
because mm-hmm. it's like it communicates a lot of a feeling of being in a world where it's like uh yeah you just can't there's no way for you to speak what you need to mm-hmm. even if you are the most eloquent person and i think also that's something that comes to mind with to me about audra lord she is eloquent and you know she can express so much but i kind of almost think that she had to find a way to do that mm-hmm. because there was so much that needed to be expressed and there was it was so hard to do it mhm okay well that brings us to the end so as we wrap up is there like one idea or a couple ideas that stand out to you most from the book yeah i'd say i always look i always try to think of like what are the themes in a thing that i'm reading and I really like the themes here are like self-liberation has to happen in order for like big political liberation to happen, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think a self-liberation is necessary so that we can have like difficult, the difficult conversations and grapple with big ideas that need to happen for us to make sure that everyone is included in the 10th of human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are my big takeaways. Awesome. Beautiful. Thanks, Suzette. I think I want to share just one takeaway, and it's just a quote from her, and I'm just going to let her kind of have the final word in, in her own words. She says, quote, What are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them, still in silence? Perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears. Because I am woman, because I am black, because I am lesbian, because I am myself, a black woman warrior poet doing my work, come to ask you, are you doing yours? 